So if you came expecting to hear the continuation of our sermon series in the book of John, you will be sorely disappointed. We have finished up the first two chapters over seven weeks of some intense, power-packed, theologically dense education. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, if you missed some of those teachings, please feel free to go back on to our SoundCloud or our uh, podcast and go back and listen to those. I got to share this because it's interesting to me. I was minding my own business, checking my email, and what did I find in my inbox but an email from somebody in London who said, hey, I'm a listener of the podcast, and I just have to say, I was really um, thankful for the teaching on Jacob's Ladder. And then he sent like three paragraphs of total nerd fest, like (laughs) Jewish hermeneutics, like second temple stuff. It was like all kinds of things. And I was like, whoa, we are global. (laughs) Nice job, TRP. All right, so we're not talking about John this week. We're gonna take a break. I'm trying to build in some breaks where we um, take some time to reflect on who we are as a people. And the the more that I've been studying and the more that I've been attempting to write this particular sermon, I know that it is representative of who we are as a people, but understand that the way that I'm going to frame it this evening is very specific to me and to my experiences. In fact, I'm going to begin with a handful of anecdotes that hopefully set up um, something that I believe is true of our community as a whole and what makes us necessary Uh, not only in this region, but um, anywhere. This is TRP is united in diversity. Despite my father's protestations, and yes, dad, you did put up some protestations, I went to a conservative Bible college after high school. Initially, I thought it was going to be a good fit for me because it was small and it was safe and it felt really familiar. I grew up, you guys know this, I attended a Christian high school and I attended a Christian elementary school and middle school. That's kind of how I was, I was brought up. And this felt like a safe little place. There was about 500 or 600 people. Um, it just seemed like a good fit for me. But most importantly, I decided to go there because I wanted to continue my athletic career As a baseball and and soccer player, I wanted to continue doing that. So I ended up at this small conservative Bible college where I would learn about who knows what. The plan originally was to go there for a year or so and then transfer and then go to a liberal arts Christian college as my dad wanted me to so that I didn't limit myself and become something crazy like a pastor. But uh, for most of my freshman year, the academics, they just felt like school. Um, As I mentioned, you know, this was kind of what I did. I went to a Christian school and we had Bible classes and we had chapel and it just seemed normal. They were okay, but they weren't too great. The professors, they were nice enough, but there wasn't a real source of connection with any of my professors. And it wasn't until my sophomore year that something finally clicked. I enrolled in a class called The Life of Christ. You can tell we're talking Bible college here. So at Lancaster Bible College, every student graduates with a Bible major, um, which means every student has to take a lot of Bible classes, which means that all of the core Bible classes are taught by a handful of different faculty members. Some of them were easy, some of them were boring, some were a good mix of both of those two. And remember, especially for you students, this was before the time of ratemyprofessors.com or any form of social media. When I cruised up on campus, I had a desktop computer, folks. I had a big old monitor, I had a big old hard drive. I brought that puppy into my room. 
We barely had the internet. We did not use email. There was no phones. I had a phone in a bag that I put in my car when I drove home from Lancaster. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the only thing that you had to go on when you were selecting your classes was word of mouth. And someone had mentioned to me in passing that there was a guy named Dr. McGahee who was really hard. And for some reason, that intrigued me and it intrigued my 2.5 GPA. What? <laughs> no big deal. My experience in that class, it was life-changing. I had never heard anyone talk about the Bible in such an academic way before. And I know that you guys are sitting here thinking, well, that sounds terrible, but I don't mean academic in a way that's cold and clinical. You could tell that the stuff that this man was talking about, it actually mattered to him. The way he talked about Jesus was different. The way that he prayed was different. The way that he explained the gospel, it was different. We learned about the first century Jewish context of the New Testament, and all God's people said a rousing amen, because that is important. We learned about Second Temple Jewish hermeneutics and approaches to understanding the Bible. We read good books. Up until this point, I had never read a book before. My mom did my book reports when I was a kid. If not mom doing the book reports, I got those great illustrated classics. You know what I'm talking about. It's got a picture on every other page. If you want to do like Tale of Two Cities, great illustrated classics, picture on every other page. I wasn't a bad student. I just didn't care because my mom helped me. I remember writing a paper about the Vietnam War and my mom sitting in the chair and me talking about some nonsense and she would turn it into a nice paragraph. That's called cheating. That's, that's, that's not how you graduate Christian high school, ladies and gentlemen. But I did that and I found my way into Bible college. In this class, in, in Dr. McGahee's Life of Christ, I was exposed to a whole new world and it enlivened my faith. Sometimes I look back at my own story and I say, it was moments like these that actually kept me in the faith. I don't know if I can say that with certainty because here I am and I know nothing different, but I'm always been, I've always been a thoughtful, analytical type person and meeting people that would go beyond the surface has been important to me. In that class, I had to confront things in the Bible that I had never confronted before or even been exposed to before. Some of it was silly stuff like uh, understanding that my only, un uh, my only knowledge of the narratives of Jesus's birth, it came from the Christmas pageants that I was in as a kid or that I watched, right? And you got Mary like being wheeled around on a donkey and you've got three wise men and then some smart person says, well, how many wise men were there? And everybody in the class says, because you remember all those pageants until somebody says, well, that doesn't say that in the Bible. It only talks about three gifts and you extrapolate from that that there must be three wise men when in fact the Bible makes no claim how many wise men there were. How many people's minds are blown right now? Okay, it was things like that that were like peripheral, but it was also more substantial stuff like when you read the Bible and it just didn't quite add up. You can go down two different paths here. You can go down the path of when you compare John to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it seems like they disagree with one another. And for me, in my context, that, that, that was problematic, and I didn't know how to deal with that. For some of you, though, it's, it's more uh, important to acknowledge the, the difficulties in the Bible when they don't add up with real life. When the prayers that you pray seem to go unanswered, when the beliefs that you have don't seem to bear the fruit that you expect, 
When I first started thinking through these and any other issue as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old Bible college student, I was young and I was naive. I did not have a good understanding of the world or the church. I only had my own experiences, but I was super excited to learn. I mean, like I was really excited to learn. I carried around a pocket New Testament with me and I tried to memorize as much of that bad boy as I could. So much so, I've told you this before, but get ready, buckle up. I I tried to impress women on the campus of Lancaster Bible College by giving them my pocket New Testament and asking them to read a passage. And I would say, stop, that's Titus 2. (laughs) Wanna grab some coffee? What's up? It's not a good move, guys. That's not a good move. It will not work on your campus. It will not work in most churches. It did not work for me either, Um, but be that as it may. Despite all of my learning, there were clear lines for me between Christian and non-Christian. There were clear lines for me between black and white. There were clear lines for me between orthodox and unorthodox or right and wrong. There was no big tent mentality of the Christian faith. There was no spectrum that people landed on. There was no real diversity of thought in my circles. We all believed the same, thought the same, acted the same. There was no dialogue pushing one another along unless we were just pushing one another along in the beliefs that we already held. There was no journey. There was no process. You were either in or you were out. Around the same time, one of my friends from high school was beginning college. He was always way smarter than us. He still to this day is way smarter than us, us and he's off doing some crazy like international leadership stuff and now I think he's working with the parks system and I don't know what he's doing, but it wasn't a surprise to us when he got a full ride to a Christian liberal arts school. My dad was very proud of him. <laughs> in his freshman year, he called me though and, and very nonchalantly mentioned that in his biology class at his Christian liberal arts college, that his professor believed in evolution. And he was fine with that. But I immediately started to panic for him. I staged like this mini intervention. I told the other friends, I was like, listen, this guy's in trouble. His biology professor, he thinks this stuff about evolution. I don't know what we can do. He's gonna lose his faith. He's he's not gonna make it. In my uh, idea of right and wrong, evolution was definitely wrong. I had absolutely no framework for a Christian Evolutionists, those two terms did not go together for me at this point. In fact, I had no framework for a view of science that went beyond the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis. So I prayed for my friend, and I quickly constructed a barrier that placed his Christian institution on the outside. A few years later, I enrolled in seminary. This is anecdote number two. In addition to Dr. McGahee and uh, his Life of Christ class and the things I learned from him, I also found some other teachers at LBC who were instrumental and influential in my spiritual development. They were smart. They knew Greek and Hebrew. They had PhDs and stuff that I couldn't even pronounce, and I just wanted to be like them. So I went to school where they went to school. It's a small conservative Presbyterian school called Westminster Theological Seminary. It just sounds smart, doesn't it? The reason why I ended up there was because it was one of the only schools in the country at the time that would do all of their biblical studies courses in the original Greek and Hebrew. So if you're taking Life of Christ, you're not looking at your NIV study Bible, you're looking at the Greek New Testament. 
that excited me. Those programs are dying because it doesn't excite many people, okay? They'd rather just look at the English because those are good translations too. I'm not sure how this story is going to translate, but I'm going to try anyway. I failed at humor with you guys before, and I might fail again. So here we go. This was one of the things I remember about my first few months at this school. The school, they hosted this chapel to introduce all of the new students. Again, this was a small community, 400 or so. They invited us up to stand on the, uh, on the front rail or so, and they would give us the microphone. They would pass it down from one uh, person to the next person. We would introduce ourselves. We would say what we were studying, and we would say what we wanted to do afterwards, which for an introvert like me was panic-inducing. I was over here like hyperventilating, getting all sweaty. I don't want to talk to anybody with a microphone. Weird how things change in your life, isn't it? That was a failed attempt at humor because I'm talking to you with a microphone right now. Do you see what I did there? Do you get that? No? Okay. Anyway, there was a woman in front of me and she got the microphone and she said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm here to get an MDiv and to, to pursue ordination in the PCUSA. You don't get the joke, okay? Let me break it down to you. An MDiv is a pastor's degree. It's short for a master of divinity. Most pastors would go to seminary to get a degree like this to train them for the, for the ministry. She said that she was trying to be ordained in the PCUSA. It's a Presbyterian denomination. PCUSA stands for Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Are you with me? Westminster is a Presbyterian school, but it's not part of the PCUSA. It's part of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. They are not Presbyterians are not creative with how they name their denominations. You have the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and then a break-off group in the 70s says, I see your United States. We're going to drop that, and we'll just be the Presbyterian Church in America. Boom! You guys have been served. I don't know what they thought there, but that was the idea. Now, the PCUSA Church, it tends to be more liberal, whereas the PCA Church is very conservative. For example, PCA churches do not believe that women can be pastors. Okay, so let's back up. This woman gets the microphone and she says, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a woman. I'm here to get a pastor's degree so I can be an ordained minister in the super liberal denomination, the PCUSA. And she says this to a bunch of old white guys in the crowd that are staunchly PCA. Silence. Because nobody knows what to do until the woman with the microphone waits and says, no, I'm just playing. I'm going to be a counselor. And the entire room of these white men, the aforementioned white men, start laughing like, ha, 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 ha. You could never be a pastor because you're a woman. Sorry, did I go too far with, with that one? This was my first introduction to the world of Presbyterian doctrine and politics. There were clear lines between what was right and what was wrong. Women cannot be pastors. That's laughable. And at the time, as I'm standing next to her, I laughed too. I wasn't a Presbyterian, but at the time, I read all the same passages that they did in the same way that they did. And if anyone read it differently, if anyone was looking at 1 Timothy 2 or, or text in, in 1 Corinthians, if anybody read them differently than I did, or most of the audience in the room on that day, we would construct a barrier. We were in because we were right. And anyone who thought differently 
was out. Anecdote number three. When I was in graduate school, I was pursuing a, a PhD. At the time, I was pursuing a, a PhD in biblical hermeneutics, because that's how you do not get jobs. That's just a straight ticket to, to debt and no jobs is what that is. I did what every graduate student did when they're studying something like that. You join your local society. This was called the Society of Biblical Literature. This is where all the nerds go and hang out. They have, a, they have annual meetings together. Everyone who is anyone in the world of biblical scholarship goes to these meetings. And you can just kind of sit there and say like, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, that's so-and-so. It's funny because I assume that this is the only time in certain people's lives when they can write a book on the ancient Near Eastern funerary texts and they get stopped in a hotel lobby from some nerd like me that says, oh man, your work on this has really opened up my eyes to the text of First Isaiah. In no other context would that person ever be recognized for any sort of scholarly contribution that they make, except in moments like this. People go to these conferences to stargaze. They also go to read nerd papers that they have written or to hear nerd papers that they wish that they had written for the non-introverts, which is actually a surprisingly high number of people. They go there to schmooze and try to get a job in a university. Those jobs don't really exist. They're trying to weasel their way into jobs that, that aren't there, or they're just going to, to talk to their former friends and colleagues colleagues, everyone who goes to these uh, meetings, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but we have a big old book room, and you go in there and you just buy tons of books. This is one of the reasons why people go to these meetings. I'm getting off, off track here just because I like books and nerds, and that's kind of what I do. So let me, let me rein this back in, okay? It's usually pretty clear when you are traveling to this conference, who is going to SBL. It's an overwhelming amount of white men in tweed, and they're descending upon these convention centers in, in big cities, and they stick out. Now, I don't have any tweed, but on a return trip from San Diego back in 2007, I'm on a plane, and my seatmate begins to talk to me, and he asks if I have been to SBL. I said yes, and we start talking about the Bible, and come to find out this person used to be a member of this society as well, we talked about the papers that I heard and the books that I bought and uh, what I was trying to do with my life. And then at one point in the conversation, he said something about his husband and he told me that he was a gay Christian. In my mind and probably on my face, I constructed a barrier. I don't remember much about our exchange uh, on that plane ride, but I remember that he was desperate to convince me that Jesus loved him. When the plane landed, we got separated as people filled the aisles to grab their luggage from the overhead bins and to wait for the door to open. And he continued to talk past two or three people in the middle of the plane to me about his relationship with Jesus and his relationship with his husband. At the time, I had zero categories for this. I was in, he was out. These are three of the more controversial topics in, in the American church, the relationship between science and faith, the ordination of women and human sexuality, and the inclusion or lack thereof of LGBT Christians. They are topics upon which Christians disagree, sometimes vehemently. Churches and denominations are divided by the conclusions offered by individuals and communities. Barriers are constructed to hem in those who have the right answers and to exclude those who don't, those who think differently or read the Bible differently or live 
differently. And to be sure, these are not the only areas upon which Christians disagree. In fact, in his book called The Bible Made Impossible, a sociologist named Christian Smith includes a sample of commonly questioned topics in the Christian faith. And they include things like the nature of the atonement, meaning why Jesus died, for who Jesus died, what his death has to do with us, the how, the when, and the why of baptism, what is a proper form of church government, hell, a biblical view of divorce and remarriage, what constitutes salvation in our pluralistic society. These are things that people disagree upon. Eternal security, divine foreknowledge, that is what God knows and when God knows it. Predestination and election. If you are a Christian because God has elected you to be so or because you have chosen to be so. Christian participation in war or the Canaanite problem, which is looking at these Old Testament texts where God seems to condone mass genocide of people and how you read that, the how, the when, and the why of communion, and so on. These are things that Christians disagree upon. I found this to be fascinating. Two scholars, and actually at least one is a pastor, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy, they take 17 common issues upon which Christians disagree. And after factoring in the two to four different takes that any one individual could have on those 17 issues, they hypothesize that there are, in theory, more than five million unique combinations of the alternative views. Christians disagree. And this results in the fact that individual Christians hold a unique matrix of beliefs that inform their belief and practice. And this is rarely recognized. In fact, it seems that we typically assume that everyone in a given church thinks like we do, acts like we do, and believes like we do. When we first planted the church, we set out to champion a different approach, one in which our community of faith could celebrate its unity of the essentials, primarily our shared identity as followers of Jesus. We were less interested in correctly identifying one of the five million potential combinations of what Christians believe as the right way. And for this reason, we affirm as a church the ancient ecumenical creeds of the Christian faith as our guide to belief and practice. The Apostles' Creed, for example, states, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and creator of earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The statement continues, I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We put this theological statement forward as a guide because it provides us with a tethering point. But it's broad enough that it leaves us with room for the inevitable disagreements that we face on issues that go beyond the creed. Issues like science and faith. Issues like the ordination of women Issues like human sexuality and the loads of other really, really important issues that divide our faith communities. 
This approach that we have championed, it seemingly flies in the face of most of the American church who work on the assumption of communal assent to an exhaustively defined statement of faith. They say, we believe this about that. Now, to fully document your faith and to create these statements of faith is not bad in and of itself, but it might be limiting. For example, I learned pretty quick as I was standing in front of all of my peers and and future professors that we in our seminary were a community that did not believe in the ordination of women. Any movement on the issue for me then would have to be done either with a different community or more likely in isolation. And it's implied when you're in these sorts of scenarios, whether accurately or not, that any movement on the issue would necessitate a new home, a new denomination, a new church. We have seen the negative effects of this. In most, but not in all cases, the questions that we have when we are in communities such as this, they're muted. Doubts are suppressed Wandering is quickly corrected, and certainty is emphasized as the goal. We have chosen instead to create opportunities for continued conversation and growth. We have committed ourselves to create space for the Spirit to lead and guide. We have chosen to include room for movement on significant theological issues. As I look around the room, even right now, knowing the stories of the people that make up TRP and seeing the way that some of you have struggled and wrestled with your faith and you've come out on the other side better for it. Note what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you used to be conservative and now you're super liberal. I'm also not saying that you used to be super liberal and now you're conservative. What I'm saying is you've been honest with who Jesus is And you've done the work of wrestling with that in community. You have not felt, hopefully, and I don't believe that this is true, you have not felt isolated to the point where you don't have anyone to process these things with you. And I believe that's because we as a church are attempting to champion unity in the midst of diversity that we're trying to give people space to go to SU and to be challenged by your professors and then come back and say, what does all of this mean for me now? To take a class like the Bible as literature that has uh, seemingly disrupted a lot of people's faith because they don't have the community in which to wrestle with some of those concepts and to see how that forces you to come out on the other side worse for it to deal with the things that you deal with and know that you have a community that might not think just like you, but you have a community that has your back. To take one very prevalent and very divisive example, what this means at TRP is that we have Democrats and we have Republicans who sit in these pews together. They sing and they pray together. And they share the communion meal each week together. And collectively, we are learning to have conversations with one another and to love one another and support one another in a world that is screaming division. Despite our political party affiliations, we're attempting to think critically about what it means to be a follower of Jesus 
and how that informs our views, stay with me, on immigration and healthcare and abortion and the prison system and the death penalty and the rights of minority groups and who gets to sit on the Supreme Court, just to name a few random topics off, off the top of my head that have no bearing in the real world. We won't tell you who to vote for, but we also won't let you sit here and believe that you can detach your faith from how you pull a lever. Diversity of thought at TRP also means that you'll probably see stuff on Facebook or on your Twitter timelines from fellow members or attenders of this community that announce to the world who they are and what they believe in. And sometimes they'll be very different from who you are and what you believe in too. This will inevitably put you in the position to recognize the bond that you have with these individuals through Christ or to create a barrier where you say they're out and I'm in. I would encourage you because I've been on the other side of these Twitter, Facebook debacles, that if you see something that troubles you or concerns you, send that person a message. It's amazing to me what we all intuit from a like or a share or some quote that we, like, we just, we create whole narratives for people at times without ever engaging them to see why they're saying what they're saying and what we might be able to learn from them. Most significantly, beyond the Facebook and beyond the ridiculousness therein, having a diverse group of people means that we have folks who think and read and believe differently on some really important points of Christian doctrine. And we have the unique opportunity to learn from them and to love them. I've got some anecdotes about my own growth with, within TRP, and it usually works out like I say something that's a bit, a bit bold and a bit too left-leaning. And then my friends in the space that might lean to the other side of the aisle, be it uh, politically or theologically, they say, hey, did you really mean that? Or were you trying to say this? And sometimes they're able to bring me back in, understanding that sometimes the things that I say might not be completely uh, helpful for the larger community. And I'm thankful for that. And it's not just how I preach or how I, how I speak in front of people. It's also how I think at the very core of my being, the relationships that I have with you. Even if we disagree on things, they're formative. They shape me. They make me go back to the text and think. They make me go back to prayer and, and, and have conversations with Jesus again. And I'm hopeful that that's the sort of community that we're finding here as well. In the past, I think that our commitment to unity has been viewed as a weakness. It's been viewed as us taking a middle ground position in order to appease both sides. And I assure you that it is not that. Our leaders have well-informed, well-studied, well-prayed-through views on divisive and difficult issues. And our church also recognizes that there are certain issues upon which we must take a stand in practice, even though they might not be explicated in the ancient creeds. And one of those, for example, is the ordination of women. 
As a church, we recognize and affirm the calling of women to full gospel ministry. This decision is based on our best reading of the New Testament, but we know that there are other godly people who stand on the opposite side, who read the Bible in a different way, and maybe that includes some of you. I want you to know with all sincerity that your partnership with us is not less than if we disagree on certain things. We value you even though and maybe because we disagree. We need you. I need you. As a community, we are choosing to worship together and to grow together and to respect each other as we lock arms in in the call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. TRP is united in diversity because we believe that the kingdom of God is diverse. We also realize that our diversity at this point is primarily a a diversity of thought. We long for the day when we will also be a community of ethnic and racial diversity because we too believe that the kingdom of God is diverse. TRP is united in diversity because we believe that various forms of diversity inform our discipleship and our growth. TRP is united in diversity because we understand that we are not there yet, that the work that King Jesus has begun in us has not been brought to completion yet, that we may look back on our own lives and not recognize who we were five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. TRP is united in diversity because we are trusting the spirit to lead and to guide. Here's a hard truth. This has proven to be too difficult or too unfamiliar for some people. Our culture, it seems, to operate best in rooms where everyone agrees on everything. We are still striving for something different. And we pray that you will strive with us toward that goal. We recognize that the work is difficult, that the work is tiresome, that the work is uncomfortable, but we have experienced how meaningful it can be, and we are hopeful that you have too.